Hi there, and welcome to the Cambridge Stronger podcast, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber. Joining us today is Susan Sukis, founder of Mosaic Financial Group and certified financial planner. Thank you so much for joining me today, Susan. Thank you, Amy. So great to have inspirational people like you on this podcast. One of the favorite parts about my podcast for me is learning more about my guests. So Susan, let's start by you telling our audience a little bit about your journey into the financial services industry. And in particular, what made you want to get started in this industry? Well, I have to say, I think probably my journey is not that dissimilar to others in that it's been kind of a windy road to get here. I was raised in an entrepreneurial family and worked in a family business in my early career. I sold that business and I began began teaching uh, for several years, but I really kind of missed the business world. And I never really even thought about financial services. I'd been in a completely different part of the business world. And in working with my own CPA, who'd been my accountant for many, many years, they started to explore financial services within their firm. And she'd asked me to come in and do tax work during tax season. And I had been a a college instructor in kind of accounting and business math and things like that, which made sense with my business background. But in exploring that for the accounting firm in the Uh, the exploration of that, it just became clear for me that financial advisors kind of got the best of both worlds. They got the education side of things. And as a lifelong learner, I love that. And they got the business side of things. So for me, it was kind of a wonderful coming together of that love of learning and sharing of knowledge, and then being back on the business side. So I kind of started in the industry and started Mosaic Financial Group in 2005, and the CPA firm never did add financial services. They, I think they just thought maybe it wasn't exactly a good fit for them at the time. So I hung my shingle and just started with Mosaic Financial Group um, and grew that practice uh, organically for a lot of years. And then in 2018, joined Tag Advisors and kind of started to look at the business from a little bit different perspective, and it allows us to serve more families. And I think many advisors come to this industry in less than a straight line, but uh, certainly I've found found my place in that it's uh, just the best of both worlds for me, quite honestly. You are absolutely right. After doing many, many of these and serving uh, many financial professionals in my career, very rarely do I talk to someone who says, I woke up, you know, day one as an adult on, in college or even right out of college and said, I want to be a financial advisor. Accidentally is one of the most successful paths they take. And it's interesting how many of you are teachers. I think that's a great alignment because I, from my perspective, outside looking in, I watch how carefully so many of the financial professionals in particular in particular, the ones affiliated with Cambridge that really, really implement a teaching philosophy for their clients. So um, you, you aren't dissimilar. You are right. I do have a quick question, follow-up. You said that the CPA firm, that particular CPA firm, never did integrate financial services. Today, fast-forwarding, we see a lot of integration between CPA and financial services. Have you ever thought about aligning with one, or do you have a professional alliance maybe with an outside firm or how do you handle that? Well, certainly I work with a lot of my clients, CPAs and tax preparers for their the goals that they have around their financial goals. 
And it's interesting for me in working with CPAs that sometimes it's just a very different fit. And you have to have, I would say, a bit of a unique business owner in maybe the lead CPA um, or the owner of the financial planning practice, that, that combining of the services that we offer. Because sometimes the CPA um, approach is very, very specific. It's very specific to tax planning. It's very specific to things that feel very, very black and white sometimes. And financial advisors live in gray all day long. And so I think it can be an, an excellent compliment for a financial advisor to have really strong relationships with CPAs in the accounting world, but I'm not sure that they always mix very well. I think that black and white is a very clear way for a CPA to work, and that's a very helpful thing for a financial advisor to have in the CPA relationship, And but it doesn't often come in the same package as the financial advisor. So I think We'd love it to work more seamlessly across those different lines, but I just haven't found it to, to be the case a lot of the times. Well said and fascinating. I can see the value in many ways of some, um, some bright line between the two services in particular for the client. Uh, my guess is that your clients perceive that you are looking over not looking over the shoulder of the CPA, so to speak, but looking over the entire package to your point and uh, not just focusing on the CPA. So that, that separation makes a lot of sense too. So let's talk a little bit about, or a little bit more about how you guide your clients back to that teaching reference. I know instead of providing one solution for a specific problem, you're very comprehensive in your approach to advice. Talk to us a little bit about the process you use and why you feel it's beneficial and desirable to the clients that you serve. Well, absolutely, and I think you're right. Part of that does come from the teaching background, but I think about why do certain firms have a more broad or comprehensive view uh, for their clients as opposed to maybe specializing in just investments or just insurance. I think each of those segments unto themselves whether it's investing, maybe insurance protection for your business or your family, legacy planning for your estate, maybe the tax efficiencies, employer benefits, retirement planning, business owner options that maybe are different from W-2 employee options. Every single one of those segments are important, but they're all part of the client's world. And so what impacts one part, in my view, is interwoven with other parts. I believe there's no one person that's probably better suited to connect the dots, so to speak, on all those various areas. To be able to see them as separate and yet interwoven is what a certified financial planner does. And I think CFPs are trained in many ways to see the pattern in those separate areas, make sure that each action in one is very intentional with an understanding of maybe what that action will do and impact it'll have on another area. I think sometimes it's challenging to gather all that information. So I think some people maybe just say, well, it's hard to get a client to share all those different areas of their lives, all those different tools that they might've used in the past in order for us to have a conversation about a comprehensive approach that says, hey, you're, you're a person with a lot of moving parts. Let's not act like those other moving parts don't exist. Let's make sure that what we're doing over here complements what you're doing over there. 
If you've got some things at your employer, those are great tools, let's use them. But let's make sure we're matching what we're doing outside of that to complement what your employer is offering. If you're a business owner, let's make sure that we're aware of all the different tools that business owners might use that are very different than someone that goes to work as a W-2 employee down the street. So sometimes it's challenging uh, to work with clients in that way and gathering all that information to see the big picture, but quite honestly, it's fascinating. It makes for fascinating work each and every day. I'm quite fortunate in the, um, the trust and the conversations that I have with clients and the different things that in sharing what feels like very basic information to them sometimes, like their, what their employer offers in benefits, how much it leads into those other conversations that hopefully are very impactful for clients. So I think you can tell, I believe that that is the best way for us to serve clients well is to know them especially well and know all the moving parts, um, kind of what are the tools in the toolkit that the client might have. So that's why we kind of think of a comprehensive approach as a best practice for our firm. I find employee benefits is a great place to start personally as I listen to these stories because every employer benefit plan seems to be different and highly complex depending on where the associate is in their life planning. So great segue into all of those different aspects of their life that you're talking about, but a really, really important part of where a financial professional can add value because you and I both know that Maybe while not uh, life ending and, and that catastrophic, though I think it could be if they make a mistake somewhere along the line. I mean, how many em uh, employees without guidance walk into their employer upon a life event and find out that they checked the wrong box or uh, didn't buy what they thought they bought in terms of benefits? And it's at a really stressful time in their lives. And those mistakes can be costly. So that's a great place to start. Well, and I agree, and I think it's also one of those places to start that is very, very clear. They offer A to Z, and that's what they're offering. I feel like part of our role as advisors is that we have an awful lot of opportunities and an awful lot of solutions, especially as independent advisors working with an independent broker-dealer. We have more options than we have time in the day but their employer has a very set list of options that they have to choose from. There's the list, you choose from that list. So it can be a very practical way to get the client to consider an action that they may or may, may, or may not need to take with a very clear short list, as opposed to the open-ended world that as independent advisors, we have the luxury of working with they have a very clear list at their employer and that's a good starting place for you know something to say well we've got a lot of opportunities for actions we could be taking let's start with a short list and build some confidence in that arena first so we just find it gives them something smaller to work on and yet it's also something that we don't get to impact we don't get to tell their employer necessarily what options they should choose and we just want to make the most most of what they actually do have so um, it's, uh, and it's fascinating for me, quite honestly, I'm a curious person and I, and it's part of the teacher to love learning 
I always say in the independent part of our, of our world, you better love learning because things are going to be different tomorrow than they were yesterday. Um, and if you want it to all be the same, this is not the place for you. And employer benefits are one of those things that I don't get to see inside that employer other than through my client's eyes. And that's a fascinating way to see what's out there beyond my doors. Well said, well said. So let's shift to a different topic that is near and dear, I think, to both of our hearts and in my opinion also connects to the independence that you just started describing. This is a relationship business, relationships between the partners that you choose to work with uh, to support your business, as well as clearly very relationship-based in your business with your clients. Talk about how you and your team build long-lasting partnerships with your clients and why those relationships are so important. Well, Amy, I'm glad that you asked not just about uh, me, but our team. And I do believe our team is always the first contact with clients or prospective clients as they call or they email. They're so vital in making sure that we're aware of what's going on in our clients' lives, whether it's the kids, the grandkids, the cats, uh, whether it's been a death in the family, a birth of a new baby or a grandchild new job, job loss, all of them are life events that are really impactful for our clients. And our team is always the first one to hear about that or the first one to see it on social media or to talk to somebody to a high school basketball game and find out what's going on. Um, so when we think about all of those life events that might be happening, obviously it's a kind of a change in the client's life, but it's quite often a change or an opportunity or maybe even a challenge for our clients that weren't there before. And if we were one of those firms that was just a transaction-based firm, I guess we wouldn't even know about those particular things. But a lot of those things that impact the people that our clients love and care about impact their financial goals and it impacts estate planning and it impacts a lot of other things. So knowing and having that long lasting relationship with the client and having that partnership with them, wherever they are, wherever they're going to be in the future, that takes a long lasting relationship, I think, to really do it well. And we know that we bring great skill to the table, but when we're first working with someone, we have to realize too that that takes them a while. It takes them a while to build trust in us, that we've got to earn that trust, earn their business, so to speak, and make sure that we're around for a period enough, a long enough period of time, I should say, so that we can get to know them more. Because the more we know them, the better we can give recommendations and guidance. I feel for those that kind of work in that 1-800 number side of our industry, in that they're trying to handle a transaction or um, take action on behalf of a client with blinders on is how I describe it. It almost be like if a doctor uh, was writing a prescription without knowing a patient's full health history. Um, it seems less than optimal. It's not a great way to work when you're dealing with people's life savings, when you're dealing with insurances that will protect their family or not protect them if it's not done well. So in some respects, to really know that client well is like the longstanding physician that's had a patient for 20 years. They start to really know that person and they know the little nuances they need to know in order to give the best guidance that they can. So we're thrilled that our clients have been with us for many, many years. Um, we're, we're happy that we're able to kind of know the people in their lives. Uh, we've got a sign in our lobby that says, what matters to you matters to us. 
And we, I asked the entire team just to list different things that we hear our clients say about things that are important to them. And I, I looked at it this morning and some of the things were friends and travel and family and freedom and security and grandchildren, all those things that come up in those really personalized client meetings that we have, whether it's charitable giving or they want to feel confident in the next step they take toward their financial goals. Some For some people, that's growth. Some people, it's stability. But it takes that long-lasting relationship to really understand what that client might need so that I can make sure that I'm recommending the right tool that our industry might have to offer, the right um, investment timeline that fits with where their goals are and where their family's going. All of that takes long-term, lasting partnerships and relationships to make that happen. The team starts it off. They're the first impression for every client. They're the first ones that answer the phone. And they're also the first ones to tell me if, uh, if something's happened to a, a pet that's been a, a family pet for a long period of time. Um, we just feel very honored that our clients let us into those parts of our lives and let us kind of hear the things that are most important to us rather than just something that's about a financial question or something like that. So we're very honored to have many of those longstanding relationships. And listening to you describe that approach I love. I have to believe there is the occasional client that maybe is referred to you and on the surface uh, seems like they might be a great fit for this, this way that you approach these relationships with your clients. And we find out either from their end, but more importantly from yours, because I think a lot of our audience ends up being financial professionals who are trying to gain some confidence and advice about how to move forward with their careers. What happens when you find one of those clients that you realize isn't a good fit for your firm? And that happens. It happens no matter how hard an advisor works. It happens no matter how much the client wants uh, the relationship to work. Just sometimes it's not a good fit. Uh, I think sometimes it's not easy to tell at the outset if it's a good fit. We have a couple of um, hard and fast rules that we will not continue to work with an individual or a family um, for just a couple of things. We'd call them fireable offenses in some respects. One is being rude or disrespectful to my team. And so if they're creating stress or anxiety for my team who's working very, very hard to serve their needs and to serve our firm, uh, that won't be tolerated. So sometimes it just takes um, a communication to say, hey, do you realize when you call my team gets a little stressed? Try to be gentle, try to be polite, or we'll try to help you find another place to have your financial services done because we work way too hard for our clients uh, who appreciate what we do to have someone not treat them well. I've got pretty broad shoulders. I can take uh, some pushback from clients or um, something that might feel a little uh, abrupt or a little, a little more intense because I think sometimes that intensity or that brusqueness just speaks to an underlying uh, concern or worry. And I can be patient and I can be tolerant with that worry or that challenge. And then I can help perhaps that client communicate it in a way that is a little more respectful. So I've got pretty broad shoulders on that. When we have a client though, that we feel like just has a different expectation of what a full comprehensive advisor does each day and how we really add value to our clients' lives, sometimes there's a learning curve for that. 
And again, I'm more patient than I used to be on that learning curve. But also part of it is we always have a discovery conversation before we even consider taking a client on into our firm. We don't tend to advertise. We tend to work from referrals and practices that come into us and things like that. But when someone does come to us, we have an initial discovery conversation that's usually a 30-minute phone call that we just have a conversation about what they're looking for in an advisor, whether they've had experience with an advisor in the past, what their goals are around financial um, aspects of now and in the future, what experience they've had so far. And sometimes we can agree right in that first 30 minutes that we're not going to be a good fit. And it can save us all an awful lot of time and energy around that. And it allows the person to go on and kind of seek a firm that will be a good fit. And so sometimes in that initial discovery conversation, we kind of uh, agree to just kind of um, go our separate ways right at that time. Sometimes we'll go through that time and we think we'll be a good fit. And then we'll ask the client to do a couple things because we do expect it to be a partnership. I always say, I can't care more about your financial goals than you do which means you've got to share in that partnership. You've got to provide some documentation. You've got to do a few things. So usually that's that next step to say, are you really in it in a partnership? Are you ready to kind of step up and provide some things that we need in order to give you the best, the best information that we possibly can? It's kind of, again, I'd say like going to a doctor's office and saying, well, I don't want to fill out the initial intake form at the doctor's office. And the doctor would say, well, then you won't be a patient here. And that would end pretty quickly. It starts out in that way because we do believe kind of in that partnership that that's how we can really add value. There are times where I think, I, and I just had an advisor ask me this the other day. We have a, a nice group of advisors that we collaborate and kind of share some of our, uh, our daily challenges uh, with each other and get some guidance from each other as a small peer group. And one of the advisors was sharing a story about a client who had misgivings about working with that advisor. They'd worked with an advisor for decades. That advisor was retiring. They know, now had a new advisor who was extremely skilled and extremely um, experienced, but was not the advisor this person had had for the last 25 years and shared their concern that eh, they weren't quite sure if this advisor was gonna be all that. And then some, as we would say. And I think the advisor, asked quite directly, is this a client that I should let go and not work with? And I just said, I think we need to acknowledge as advisors that when a client says that they don't want to work with us or they have hesitancy about working with us, we need to realize first and foremost, it hurts our feelings. It just straight up hurts our feelings. We're, you know, we're very proud of the work we do and we take a lot of pride in the way we work with people. And then we have someone who's brand new, who's maybe questioning whether they want to work with us. And we think, well, don't you know how, what a great job I do for my clients. And I would say to this colleague of mine, no, they don't know that. They're working with you for the first time, perhaps. So a client that I might've been less patient with in the past, I've grown more patient to say, they're hesitant, they're worrisome perhaps, they're not certain. Well, we've got time. We can allow them to build the trust in us. We can allow an imperfect relationship to start and continue to work with that client to make it a better and a better relationship. So I really only have a couple hard and fast rules. Don't be disrespectful of my team. Don't be rude and, and make sure that we can actually add value. I would say the number one way that I won't work with a client um, other than just a disrespectful tone is truly about 
if I don't think we can add value, if I think what they're looking for is not what I think a true full service financial planning firm should be doing. And we'll simply encourage them to find somebody that might be a better fit. What I One of the things that I took out of that as I was listening to you describe this process is you must build a lot of loyalty with the team that we keep talking about, your team, because you, it appears to me, really appreciate and solicit and allow them serious engagement as it relates to building the business. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to maybe describe a little bit more about who you've surrounded yourself with. You don't need to use their names if you're not comfortable with that, but it, you know more about how many, how big is your team and, and what roles do they play and how have you built you know, your, your tribe around you to make sure that you keep moving your business forward. Absolutely. And I do believe the team that I have around me is a hundred percent the reason for the growth that we've been able to have in the last few years. Part of that was making sure that we had a strong bench of support team members. There's an awful lot of paperwork. There's an awful lot of emails. There are an awful lot of communications that come from insurance companies and our broker dealer and all of that, that needs attention each and every day. And a financial advisor that loves engaging with clients wants to be client facing as many hours a day as they possibly can. So I've been very intentional around making sure that the tasks that I do are things that only I can do. And that other tasks, my immediate thought is, is can someone else do this? Can someone else do this task? Or am I the only one that can do this task? And if anyone else can do it, then I'm going to ask that someone else do it. So my team is given perhaps some responsibilities and some authority around certain tasks that sometimes financial advisors put on their own plate. I've been through an awful lot of professional development programs over the years that talk about kind of making sure you're in your unique ability and that you're doing what you do best. And I transfer that onto the team as well. We look at each team member and say, how does this individual person stay in their unique ability? I think sometimes when we hire someone at first, we say, well, this is the task I want them to do. And as we do our reviews, and I have my employees do their own review, they're given um, a worksheet where they assess their own capabilities and how they're doing in certain categories. And we look for areas where they're struggling and we look to take those off their plate, just like I would want them taken off my plate if it was an area where it didn't put me in my unique ability where I could really shine each day. So there's plenty of work to be done and plenty of areas where someone can truly shine and then allow them to continue to kind of develop that area. So we've got some people that are especially great on the telephone and especially great on kind of talking with clients about what is going on for that client. And then how do they get that in front of me as an advisor so I can do what I do best. There are some that are just exceptionally good at paperwork processing and every single box gets checked in exactly the same way every single time. And they do that especially well and someone else would just hate that side of our industry. And they're, they want to do something that they would consider to be more open-ended or more creative. And they might do my social media side, or if I want the bio that you asked for, for our conversation today, I asked somebody on my team, could you get a bio to me in the next four hours? And I need this as well. They said, okay, they already had it teed up. I tweaked it by one or two words. 
and sent it out. So that person would hate doing paperwork, but they love doing that other side of things that an advisor needs. I make sure that everybody has a full plate every day that we're having things kind of teed up ahead of time. I'm always thinking whether I'm that financial advisor that's becoming the bottleneck for their team. If the team says, well, we're just waiting for Susan to review that, that tells me I'm becoming a bottleneck. How can I get out of the way of my team so that they can keep moving on with all the tasks that they need to do? And they came from, I would say, when you think about hiring somebody, um, we hire for attitude. We hire for work ethic. And almost everything else can be taught. But I have to think, if you don't have a work ethic, if you don't come with what we say, come with batteries included, motivated to work every day, looking to add more value to the team, because as I talk with my team, they're not just there to grow our firm. I said, the larger our firm grows, the more efficient we are, the more we can help more families. And we'll talk about the families that we work with. And these are people that my team care deeply about. And I'll say, when that person calls and they sound a little agitated, they're probably worried. Think about how your grandpa would be worried right now about what he hears on the news. Let's be gentle. Let's be kind. Let's be the calm in the storm. And so my team take on a huge amount of responsibility, but I also give them the authority as well to make sure they're solving their problems, that they have a team on their side. They have the back office at our broker dealer. They have insurance companies, internals and externals as part of their team. They have an entire network of people that help them get their job done, just like they help me get my job done. Um, and I just want them to make sure that they're working with all those people that serve them, who help us serve our clients better. We talk about little things like sending a thank you note to an internal because that internal made their job easier in prepping the paperwork for that client that needed the paperwork. So I want them to see the fruits of their labor and sometimes behind the scenes that can be hard to see. So my job is to make sure they get all the good, warm kind of feelings that I get when I get to engage with clients every day, that when they're doing paperwork, that they get to see how that really impacts a family and they understand they're doing meaningful work. Susan, do you use any particular tools when you're interviewing and hiring or even people that have been with your firm for some time uh, on that team, they grow, right? And, and there's other opportunities that come up. Do you use any tools to help you and them make the decision about where they might fit best or what their career paths are? Certainly. And I think some of it, we always start with a Colby before we do a hire and that was introduced to us through Strategic Coach. And having done Strategic Coach for many years, you start to really see how Colby dictates how people take action in their everyday work lives and in every day in general, but especially in the work setting. And so we'll do a Colby just to make sure that the job we actually had the job search for and that we're actually currently hiring for has the best potential for this person's Colby to align with that particular task or that role that we're looking to be done. When that person comes in and the Colby looks like it might be a good fit for that kind of very detail-oriented work, then we start to say, are there ways that they want to receive information best? Is it done verbally? Is it done through uh, written word? How do they best take communications in? That might mean that they should or should not be on the phone. 
It might mean um, that their writing capabilities are not the same as their spoken word. They might do beautifully with spoken word, but might be more challenged with writing. Uh, and so we'll have templates around emails and templates around things so that the messaging is the same. No matter which person might be sending an email about online access, it's gonna look the same. So that if that is not a strong suit for them, they can work around that. In their self-evaluations that, again, I never remember to do. So someone else puts it in my calendar. This says it's time for your self-evaluation. And here's the self-evaluation form. When you complete it, you'll go to lunch with Susan and you guys will talk about it. Well, I had an employee recently who's worked for me about a year and she just did not get her self-evaluation done. And I said, do you ever want to get a raise? And she said, <laughs> yes. And I said, well, then do your self-evaluation. Just do it. Whatever you write down, put something on the paper and then let's go to lunch or you're never going to get a raise. And I want you to see that having some kind of self-reflection taking a look at what you do, being mindful about what you do each day when you walk in the store, because I want it to be meaningful for you. It's meaningful for me. I want it to be meaningful for you. So that takes a little bit of self-reflection is to say, what is it I do? And how is what I do? How does it kind of feed and foster the greater goal that we have for clients? If I can't see my role in the greater good, I might just think I'm punching numbers or I'm typing in forms all day. And I don't see how important the accuracy of those forms are. But also then in that conversation, it helps me to explore for them as a person who I believe work is a great defining part of how we gain confidence in all areas of our life. That I think if that person gains confidence in their work life, it transfers out into the rest of their life in many, many ways. I want them to be able to then say, I see someone doing that, I'd like to try that as well. Or I see this that we're doing that doesn't feel as efficient as it could be. All the increased efficiencies come from some kind of something within our process that's not working well. So I always talk with the team about what is driving you crazy? What are the things that just feel like they're a weight? What does it feel like that we're not doing well or we're hitting our head on the wall? How, how do we get around that? Because I think that then gives us direction on improvement. When everything's going beautifully, it's hard to see that next level of incremental improvement. But when something gets a little stuck, something's not working smoothly, that can be a great arena for growth. And so I'm always asking the team, what's driving you crazy right now? What feels like we're not working as efficiently as we could? What are we feeling kind of overworked by? And they'll instantly have those things to talk about. And then we'll talk and develop the improvement to the process that allows us to scale and add more value for the clients we're working with and be able to serve more clients and more families in general. So they're the, they're the hands and the boots on the ground that give me the insight to how we can improve our processes. And we use different systems as we feel needed. Certainly there's new softwares and new things that we get exposed to all the time that help us kind of improve that process. And I rely on my team to review those different tools to make sure that they're the ones that are gonna use them each day, um, that they make sure that they're gonna be a good fit for them because they're the best ones to give guidance on how we can serve clients every day. That is very inspiring. Self-reflection leads to self-awareness, in my opinion. And the self-awareness helps us as leaders 
both our own self-awareness, but encouraging others to embrace self-awareness. One of my favorite books is Good to Great by Jim Collins and that strategy presented in the book around having the right people on the bus, but most importantly, having the right people in the right seats on the bus builds that great company. And it sounds like you have in many, many ways embraced a lot of approaches to be able to make sure you've got the right people doing the right thing. So congratulations. Well, thank you. And I would say though, it's almost like what we talked about a little bit earlier there are times when people have come from a less than accepting environment. They've come from a corporate world that was all about check the box and your review is done. It wasn't about true improvement. It wasn't about a collaborative way. And so if you have an employee that's working for you that comes from an environment that wasn't as accepting, wasn't as driven toward growth in a collaborative way, give them time to learn that new skill. It can, it's like this person, she wanted a raise. She definitely wanted a raise, but she'd never been asked to review her own performance before. She'd never been asked to even comment about her performance or to think about different ways that she might approach work differently. And so it was just a muscle that had never been worked before. So I always encourage us to be patient with both our clients and our team as they kind of feel the acceptance that comes with, you really do want my opinion, you really do value it. And now it's my job to prove that I value it, to implement the recommendations that they make, to see them used each day, to see how they can tweak it if it wasn't perfect the first time, which they never are. And then it's my job to prove as their employer, their views really are valued, that it wasn't just about filling out a form and checking a box. So I always just encourage us to be patient with each other around that. Thank you for sharing. So um, I could talk to you forever and love listening to your stories. One of the other things, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here that I love to try to get out of this podcast for our listeners is some inspiration that uh, while we all take our business very seriously, an important part of making sure that we are engaged and uh, energetic enough to take this complex business as seriously as we do and and for you to serve so many lives is that you have to have a personal life as well. So talk to our listeners a little bit about how you enjoy spending time outside of work. What is it that you do to recharge those batteries, so to speak? Well, it's curious that, you know, I feel like a lot of people have a lot of views about work-life balance now. And I think the the time that we're in as far as our culture and things like that is very mindful and intentional around work-life balance. And I agree with that completely, but I think it looks very different for different people. I do get a lot of personal satisfaction from my work and personal satisfaction from engaging with clients and just people in general and other professionals in my industry. And some of that's going to conferences and things like that. So while someone from the outside might look and say, I don't think she has a lot of work-life balance. She seems to work an awful lot. I'd say, goodness, I love what I do. That's a lovely balance for me. When I'm outside of actually the work environment, 
I love to travel. I travel a lot for work, but I also love to travel just for the exploration of new places. I love new foods, whether it's cooking them myself or going to a new restaurant. Probably from a time perspective, I spend the most of my outside time other than with family and friends reading. Um, I do love to read. I probably read 20 to 30 books a year, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, biographies, short stories, um, a whole variety. I couldn't do that if I actually sat and read each book in paper form. I do listen to a lot of audio books, but I find that that recharges my batteries, reading other ideas from writers or from other people's lives and reading their biographies or whether I just slip a little bit into fiction uh, or uh, short stories. It, it re-energizes me and it also just gets me out of this kind of linear world, which financial services sometimes feels very kind of driven and growth oriented and linear and just allows a lot of that more artistic, creative side from uh, other people that do it really well. So reading, I'd say, is one of my favorite ways to re-energize. What uh, you're reading right now? Um, I'm reading a few things. There's a, I'm, I happen to be traveling this week. And there's a particular writer that I love, and I never, I don't speak French, so I never pronounce his name well, but uh, Alain, I think is his first name, A-L-A-I-N-D-E-B-O-T-O-N, Alain de Baton or something like that. Again, someone will correct me on that, and I'd love to hear it. But he's read, he's written many books that I've read many times. He's written The Art of Travel. Um, I'm reading, I think it's called A Week at the Airport. And he's literally um, was hired by the owner of Heathrow, who owns also a few other airports, but who owns certain things within Heathrow and asked him to be the writer in residence for Heathrow Airport in London for one week. And his views toward just the human condition in whatever setting, he's written great books about the workplace, about travel, about philosophy. He's one of my favorite writers who takes you somewhere else, even though you're in the everyday. So I'm listening to that. I'm listening to Decisive. Uh, I'm listening to a Chris Voss on negotiations. I probably have four or five books at any given time that I kind of flip between, but some of them I come back to many, many times. And that's, uh, that's a tribute to the author. I'm very similar. So thank you for sharing with our listeners. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today on Cambridge Stronger. You're a perfect example of what, when we were thinking about how to tee this uh, podcast series up, we wanted to share with our listeners. Cambridge Stronger is definitely uh, representative in the stories that you're telling us today. So thank you for sharing all of that. And Cambridge is very proud to serve you and your clients, even in the smallest ways that we can. So Thank you for your business. Are there any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? Well, I would just thank you, Amy. I thank you for your leadership, certainly as advisors, when we look in this industry, as a female advisor, especially. I'm always encouraged when we see women in leadership and women continue to be added both to uh, the independent side of our, of our financial services world, but at every level within the financial services industry, we are 50% of the population. I appreciate your leadership and that of your team. It helps all of us kind of look toward the growth that we want to see for ourselves and for our clients. So I appreciate all that you do. You're very welcome. The future is bright. We're going to keep on keeping on as it relates to those types of things. 
and uh, it takes each one of us. So thank you for mentioning that. Again, thank you for joining the podcast. I know the listeners are going to get a ton of value out of this, and I hope to see you very soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. 